0: Beto O'Rourke decries gun law extremism as he pushes for confiscation of AR 15s and an interview with David French on the Kyle Rittenhouse verdict. That and more on this episode of the Weekly Reload
1: Podcast. I made the devil run. I gave him poison just for fun. I
0: had one friend Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Gutowski. I'm also the founder of thereload.com, where you can head over and buy a membership today if you want to support our journalism. We are completely independent, 100% reader-funded operation here, and we sell memberships to our readers to accomplish that goal of remaining independent. So if you support the kind of reporting we do, if you want to get this podcast a day early, that's one of the perks of membership, go ahead and check out what we have in the way of uh, monthly and yearly memberships and lifetime memberships even. Um, You'll also get access to a number of exclusive posts, including exclusive stories and exclusive analysis pieces every week. And you'll get access to our weekly members newsletter, which comes out every Sunday, in addition to our free newsletter. So if you just wanna check out what we're about, you can head over and subscribe to the free newsletter, which comes out every Friday, and you'll get a taste of what kind of reporting and analysis we do. We try to keep things sober and serious Uh, And we try to have experts on and uh, the podcast each week in order to discuss the relevant topics of the day. And today we have on our special early Thanksgiving (laughs) episode here, uh, David French from the dispatch to discuss the Kyle Rittenhouse case and especially open carry and what we should do in going forward from here. Uh, about open carry David can you introduce yourself and just uh tell the audience who you are if they don't know
2: Yeah yeah I'm David French I'm a senior editor at the Dispatch I'm a contributing writer for the Atlantic uh before that I done constitu- I was a constitutional litigator for a long time uh more than two decades before I joined the, the journalism world full time and I'm maybe most importantly a subscriber to The Reload so mm-hmm. Um, yeah, big fan of your work. I, uh, really appreciate you bringing me back here and I'm, I read it constantly. So yes, that very happy to be a guest. That's
0: your best attribute in my opinion, personally, Uh, (laughs) (laughs) certainly. Um, and, uh, obviously you've created a a stir as, as, uh, (laughs) it's become common for, for you, I think in, in recent years, given our, our political moment, uh, you're, you're one of the uh, most talked about writers, I think, in politics, <laughs> frankly, uh, oh, at this point. Goodness, I don't know that uh, you maybe don't envy. I maybe don't envy you for being that. And I don't know if that's what you want. But <laughs> certainly, that seems to be what has uh, happened over the last few years here. Um, ever since uh, you were suggested to be president at one
2: point. Right? Um, yeah, that's uh, still crazy that that happened, but yeah. <laughs> uh back in 2016, briefly considered running a independent race against both Trump and Hillary and I still can't believe that I whenever those words come out of my mouth, I still can't quite believe that that was actually uh a decision-making process that occurred, but yeah, so um you know, going back in 2016 uh was very much on the anti-Trump side of the conservative world sure. and never never changed that stance uh didn't mean i became a democrat either so Mm -hmm. um it's a uh kind of a a uh person without a tribe so to speak
0: yes yes uh certainly and this week you've uh become the center of attention for your uh your take on the kyle rittenhouse trial and verdict uh, and what we should do moving forward from that verdict first i think we should just start with some of the things that uh perhaps we agree on and then we can move to some of the Mm -hmm. things that are more controversial and that we might not agree sure uh so i think the the verdict itself right you believe that kyle rittenhouse being found not guilty for a reason of self-defense in the two killings and the third shooting was the proper outcome is that right
2: yeah absolutely and the reason actually it all, to, in my mind, it all flows from the first, it, everything flows from that first shooting. So in the first shooting, it became p- pretty clear early on that um, the, and the video evidence was pretty clear that Rittenhouse was being pursued by his first victim um, very aggressively. And and he was actually in the act of retreating. You know, so so here he was in a circumstance where he wasn't an aggressor from the video evidence that you saw early on. He was actually in the act of retreating from somebody who was pursuing him. Now, the real question there was. If you're armed and somebody who is not armed is aggressive towards you, that doesn't give you a right to shoot them. You don't you don't have a just because you're carrying a weapon and someone attacks you in some way doesn't give you a right to shoot someone under the law because the law is essentially, and Wisconsin's no different in this, that you're supposed to have a proportionate response. Um, and so if somebody shoves you and yells at you, you just can't pull out a Glock and, and empty it into their chest. Uh, you have to have a reasonable, and this is the key word, reasonable fear of death or grave bodily harm. And so sometimes when a person who's unarmed is attacking, you might have a reasonable fear. Sometimes you won't, and so the circumstances depend, or it greatly depends on the circumstances. And I think the the defense introduced uh, evidence that really, um, I, I think, quite obviously, made the jury uh, really concerned that had Rittenhouse not fired his weapon, that. That first attacker could have seized it, used it against Rittenhouse. There was evidence that 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 individual had been quite aggressive during the during the evening. That he, um, you know, there's evidence introduced that he'd actually threatened to kill Rittenhouse. Um, And so, when you have that kind of evidence, it raises the stakes. And the reason why I said everything was really hinged on that first shooting. If that first shooting was not lawful. (laughs) then what happened afterwards is in cast in a different light as well. So if he's walking away or trotting away from a murder, then the individuals who then moved on him at that point, it casts their actions in a different light. Um, And it casts Kyle's actions in a different light. Now, if it's not a murder, um, you know, as the jury found, then, you know, Kyle's situation as he's running down that street is quite different. And so uh, the key, the key in that case, to me, the key in that case was that first shooting. And once that first shooting, once that first shooting was found to be um, self-defense, I think everything else flowed from that.
0: Yeah, uh, we had a legal expert who practices self-defense law in Wisconsin mm-hmm. on the previous episode of the podcast here, John Monroe. And he actually had the same take as far as the the importance of that first shooting Mm -hmm. on the entire case and i understand that i think that makes a lot of sense in a certain degree of course obviously just because that first shooting was in self-defense doesn't necessarily mean that each subsequent shooting automatically is in self-defense obviously you still have to look at the individual actions to determine whether or not he was reasonably in fear for his life and acted with a reasonable level of force in response to what he was attacked with. And obviously the jury found that that was the case. And I think based on the video evidence that we saw all along, there probably was the right conclusion. Uh, Although it is interesting, I think, to look at the motivations of the people after the Rosenbaum shooting, the first shooting, because, uh, you know, it's probably fair to assume that they did think that he had committed a murder and was trying to flee the scene. Now, to, to be fair to Rittenhouse, he's running towards the police in this scenario. Right. So uh, perhaps those people, uh, you shouldn't have intervened at all and let the police handle it, but you're in an atmosphere that's a riot atmosphere mm-hmm. and the police didn't pers- come down towards them until
2: after the next series of, gunshots being fired. Well, here's a bit of a mind bender (laughs) about this. So you're exactly right. If, If the fact that the first shooting was lawful did not automatically render the next two shootings lawful. But if the first shooting was unlawful and he had just murdered somebody, then when you're when you're moving away from a murder, like just imagine, say that you've you've held up a convenience store and you've shot the clerk. And you're, and you're sort of running out of the convenience store and somebody intervenes to stop you. I don't have the right to shoot the people who intervene to stop me, right? Um, and so if he just murdered them, if he murdered Rosenbaum and he's, he's running away, then it casts his own ability in the, in the continuation of that event to shoot in a totally different light. But the fact that he didn't murder Rosenbaum and the jury found him not guilty of that, means he's not a murderer running away, right? Mm-hmm. Now, here's the mind-bending thing. It is entirely possible for one of the two guys, if they had been able to sort of wrestle away the gun or the, the EMT who was shot in the bicep, if he had fired first and killed Rittenhouse, it's probable he could have mounted a self-defense argument in that circumstance yeah. because he was operating under the presumption that written house suggests murdered somebody and when you've got a, a person you presume to be a murderer running with a weapon out in the open, um, then is it reasonable? Is it reasonable to fear injury or grave bodily harm from that person? So there's this really weird, there's a very strange way in which different parts of the law function together. That can create circumstances, and this is something that's kind of mind-bending to a lot of people, where there can be legal gunfights. Um, I'll give you an example, um, the Breonna Taylor situation in Louisville. So uh, Kentucky has a standard ground law. That means that if somebody comes bursting into your house, unless you know they're law enforcement, unless you have a reason, if unless it's reasonable for you to know that they're law enforcement, you don't have to retreat, right? You can open fire. But if you're law enforcement and you're serving a warrant and you burst into someone's house and they fire on you, you have the legal ability to return aimed fire at that location. So that's exactly what happened. is somebody burst in the door, the home, not the homeowner, but the boyfriend who was there, pulled a gun, didn't know who was there, hadn't heard any identification. The evidence is that he hadn't heard any identifications, please. So he fired a single shot. Once he fired which was lawful. The police had the ability to fire back, which was lawful. And there you have it right there, a legal exchange of gunfire. And that's how the sort of this weird quirk in the law where that something like that can actually occur.
0: Yeah. And there was actually a very similar case to, to the Breonna Taylor shooting that the, 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 Defendant who was charged with felony murder for his girlfriend being killed in a very similar kind of shootout as to what you get just described, Mm -hmm. where the police officers killed her in crossfire. Um, He was also acquitted uh, under this exact same concept that you're describing here. Right. As an African-American gentleman um, Mm -hmm. that a lot of people had brought up in the wake of of the Rittenhouse. Sure. And it's, yes, so so it's a similar situation. I think that is a, a good point that a lot of people don't really think through with this case on either side. Yeah, self-defense is, it's a murky thing in terms of, uh, yeah, the law might be fairly clear, but when you throw in what's reasonable and what's not reasonable, <laughs> what, what does it mean to, be, to reasonably fear for your life? And yeah. what does it mean to use reasonable force necessary to defend yourself? That, that's where you get into basically a, a whole second guessing game. That's essentially what juries do in these cases. And so that's, and you also have to remember that a lot of the circumstances that surround the actual act of the shooting itself don't necessarily matter to the legality of it. They might matter to the morality of it, which we'll talk about in a moment here, Mm -hmm. uh, as you've discussed in your pieces, but they don't really matter to the legality. The fact that Rittenhouse didn't live in uh, Wisconsin that he crossed state lines it doesn't matter uh to the right to the shooting. it doesn't matter that he was there when people believe maybe he shouldn't have been there that doesn't matter to the legality of the shooting. Right. the the fact that the uh, brianna taylor's uh boyfriend was uh, i believe not allowed to legally own firearms doesn't matter the shooting the same thing for this uh, although people can correct me if I've got that detail wrong, but this most
2: recent shooting with where the, I think it was lawful. Yeah. I think he was lawful in possession, but I, okay. I'm not 100% well, sure,
0: shooting at the police, right? That, that the boyfriend mm-hmm. was suspected of, or I guess it was her, mm-hmm. her ex-boyfriend was suspected of being uh she was suspected of working with him or uh,
2: it was an ex-boyfriend. Yeah. Right. So right. that's perhaps
0: mm-hmm. a different uh, analogy mm-hmm. there, but the, the more recent case where the defendant was found not guilty of felony murder for a shootout with the police, even though that defendant was polit- was prohibited from possessing firearms, that didn't matter to the specific self-defense claim against felony murder uh, in this case because, again, this is another situation where he didn't know that it was the police who was who were breaking into the home. Uh, anyway, right. the the point is that the some of these larger questions about whether or not, uh, in the Rittenhouse case, whether or not he should have been there, whether or not um, he should have gone to the city at all that night, they don't really have any bearing on the actual specifics of the right. whether it was legal for him to shoot Rosenbaum and the other uh, uh, the other people that he shot that night.
2: Yeah, I mean the only uh, you know there there the only exception to that might be if there there had been evidence introduced that he went intending to shoot people, right. um, but even then you still would have to look at the specific circumstances and the specific circumstances he's fleeing from Rosenbaum mm-hmm. when, and the other thing that was um, the other thing that was going on also if you watched some of the video evidence and carefully was that there was a gunshot that there was a gun fired in the air right. right before um right before Rittenhouse turned and shot Rosenbaum and Rosenbaum didn't have a gun in his hands but you're talking about an atmosphere of chaos gunshot fired in the air guy is running after you allegedly has tried to has threatened you with death threatened to kill you before and so this was a circumstance where the prosecution proving beyond a reasonable doubt the claim against Rittenhouse was going to be a tall order. All right. So
0: the next thing I wanted to talk about with with regards to Rittenhouse's situation is you, you've written about this extensively at this point. You don't believe that he is a hero and you believe that some people, especially on the right, are making him out to be a hero. And you think that that is uh, problematic, right? Can you explain a little bit about your view there?
2: Yeah, definitely. I, I, you know, as a matter of fact, we know that there are people on the rat right who are making him out to be a hero, and and I sure. think the the problem here is, boy, it's multiple. Um, one is he engaged in behavior that we really don't want seventeen-year-olds to engage in. Um, if there is civil unrest, the idea that somebody, you know, just think about a lot of these people who are calling him heroes. Let's just be honest; they're 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 keyboard posturing um how do we know that they're keyboard posturing they would never grab a rifle and go there themselves they would never if they're parents like I'm a parent they would never say to their teenage son hey Billy stop studying biology here's a rifle go downtown they would never do that why would they never do that it's not because they're cowards it's because that is a reckless and foolish thing to do to insert yourself without situational awareness, without training into a highly volatile situation, openly armed with people you know are violent around you, is an extra, and then, and then also let's just be honest about what, how difficult it is to suppress civil unrest. It's one of the most difficult things in law enforcement is, is suppressing civil unrest once it's broken out. And so it is a situation where it's just reckless. It's just reckless. Now, there's a difference between walking downtown into the middle of a riot and say, if the riot is coming to you and you have a home, defending your home, there's a difference between those are different things. And I think a lot of that has been conflated in some of this debate, public debate. But. Um, And so why is it dangerous? Why is it reckless? Well, one of the reasons why it's dangerous and reckless is because of what we just saw is that when you're watching the video of Rittenhouse and and these shootings, what you're not watching is you're not watching somebody who's putting down a riot. You're watching somebody who's fleeing for their life, somebody who is is firing the first shot really mainly to protect his gun, which then by extension protects his life. um, And is retreating from the scene. This isn't, this isn't imposing civil order here. Uh, it's a person who got in over his head and had to shoot his way out of it to preserve his life. And that's not a model for how to deal with civil unrest by any stretch. And, and so, you know, I think that one of the things that we can, we can kind of hold two things in our head, we don't have to move to extremes. We can say, look, the state's case against him was fatally flawed. He didn't commit murder. But we can also say that we don't want 17-year-olds grabbing AR-15s and going to insert themselves into riots, Um, that that is highly destabilizing. That is not the population of people that we want doing this. Um, There are a lot of reasons why you need people who are disciplined and trained in dealing with these kinds of circumstances. And, you know, one one quick last thing on this, because one of the things that I've heard people say is, well, the state had totally failed in its duty to maintain civil order. Yes. Yeah, there were there was absolutely no question that he was in the middle of a riot, but there is also no question that the police were executing a plan at that moment. The police had, had begun to end the curfew and had begun to enforce the curfew and had moved. And, you know, when you zoom out from this, they were moving in this direction. They were moving in the direction of, as Rittenhouse showed when he When he walked, not far away, it was not far away. He walked into a moving line of police, and so, you know, one of the things here is, if you say the standard is a riot has to be immediately suppressed, or we're going to grab our gun and we're going to go into a riot, um, or have a teenager grab a gun and go into a riot, I don't think you're understanding what how difficult it is to suppress civil unrest, and then. Once you have your gun and you're in the middle of a violent situation and you have no plan and you have no training, it's let's put it this way. It's uh, might map out a lot better in your head than it does on the street. And and so that's a real problem. And then when you take somebody, a 17 year old like that, and you turn him into a hero, um, what you're then doing is some small percentage of people who lack sort of this common sense to understand their limitations in the circumstance. We'll try to imitate it and walk in openly armed, completely untrained, no real plan, and contribute to the chaos.
0: Yeah, I think you made a lot of good points there, honestly. Uh, although, one, I, I would point out that in Kenosha, there had been already rioting that had resulted in sure. the burning down of, of a car lot and other buildings uh, the night before, right? Um, and so this... Uh, house and the other people who, who were there, uh, I guess, were trying to prevent that again. And then the rioters who were out on the street appeared to be trying to set more fires and sure. smash more cars uh, when this happened. So I do think there's some question as to I do think that there's certainly plenty of reason to be critical of the police response and especially the governor's response in not.
2: Not calling out the National uh, Guard, the right, National Guard. right. No, I think there's right. a lot of reasons to be critical broadly in the summer of 2020 on failures to call out the National Guard. Um, yeah. Suppressing urban unrest is one of the most difficult challenges that exists, not just in law enforcement, but, you know, when when we were in Iraq in counterinsurgency, suppressing urban unrest is remarkably diff- difficult. But one of the things that, you learn is that overwhelming presence can often be a substitute what you would for overwhelming force so in other words overwhelming force can often exacerbate the situation by creating its own level of violence and chaos so that would think about for example the way in which um military units uh the way in which the way in which military units treated some of the riots in the 1960s and with an incredible amount of force. And they've, the military has since learned that that's not exactly how you do this. And so that has resulted in changes in tactics. And, and presence is very, very powerful. Uh, presence is very, very important. Um, but we, you know, so failure to call out the National Guard in many of these cities and states, I think, was a big mistake. Right. I think
0: for me, I'm of two minds when it comes to. Rittenhouse being there at all that night, obviously, I think you make some really good points about uh, just generally about trying to intervene in a riot. There's sort of the old adage of uh, uh, this violates every rule of stupid, which is you don't go stupid places with stupid people at stupid times. Right. A riot would be all three of those, obviously. Um, And certainly. You would if you're going to want somebody to go down and try to protect other people's property as rittenhouse was attempting to do in this case you wouldn't want to send minors, 17 year olds right to do that uh right i think most people would agree with that sentiment now obviously you talked about how there's a difference between going down somewhere into the riot and if a riot comes to your home Mm -hmm. um and uh, you know obviously if a riot comes to your business uh that's that's another area where i think you're you're entitled to defend your business from being burned down by rioters now you have to make a calculation as to whether or not it's worth your life potentially to do that or worth taking someone else's life of course uh, in this situation and You also have the question of whether or not you should try enlisting other people to assist you in that who aren't, you know, your immediate family members or someone else who has an interest in the business. But you look at situations, obviously, like the um, rooftop Koreans as they've been come to be called over the years and the L.A. riots. And uh, there have been also a number of businesses, uh, black owned businesses, had people with guns, trying to protect them during the riots. In some cities like Atlanta, you had businesses in Philadelphia uh, where people were on the roofs with guns. It, when, you're, when you're in a riot situation, a lot of these things become very complicated, very fast. Do you just let the rioters come through and burn down everything? Do you try to intervene uh, in, in an imperfect way? by showing up yourself armed, you know, uh, that's where I think it's less cut and dry. And Rittenhouse was at least attempting to do what I think most people would believe is an honorable thing, even if there's good reasons, as you explained earlier, why you wouldn't want a 17 year old kid to be doing that and why there's a lot of considerations that have to go into whether or not you wanna use You know potentially lethal force or the threat of deadly force to protect property you know is another
2: right question well and all of that a lot of that is highly regulated by state law too so you know the ability to use deadly force to protect property is not a given in the united states of america right so um some of this is
0: what do you think of the of you know obviously the rooftop koreans the people in koreatown and during the la riots the way that they banded together to defend their stores in
2: that situation. I don't know what the law is and was at that time. Um, You know, the general view, my general disposition is the use of deadly force to protect property is, is inappropriate Um, to shoot somebody when uh, to protect property and kill them. um, I, I believe that now I believe tend to tend to believe that the use of deadly force should be reserved for when you are in fear of, um death or grave bodily injury um right and so the you know i
0: just i just would say there that i mean obviously certainly it's much more troubling if you're just going to start taking random shots at people approaching your property Mm -hmm. but if you're gonna stand outside of your business with the gun during a riot as in a deterrent and then people continue to come at you well, here's the question, OK, set your place on fire. Like, so you know, if you're it not gets blurry is what I'm saying.
2: We're right, But if you're not. So if the rule is in, in a nation governed by the rule of law and if the general rule is that you're not entitled to use deadly force. Now, your home or dwelling is a different thing. There's, you know, where where you live, you know, it's sort of the traditional castle doctrine. You're that where you're if you know talking about where you live and where you lay your head at night. Um, and there are some jurisdictions that essentially extend the castle doc- doctrine to other kinds of places, um, you mm-hmm. know. And so. But then essentially what begins to happen is if I don't have the right to use deadly force, um, then why am I brandishing a weapon uh, or, or carrying a weapon if I don't have the right to use deadly force? OK, so um if i don't have the right to use deadly let's say i'm standing guard over my bicycle (laughs) and i don't want someone to steal my bicycle and then i'm but then i'm carrying openly you know i'm brandishing a weapon to protect my bicycle and then essentially what then becomes that happens is the existence of the weapon itself then becomes the pretext for the use of deadly force because then maybe somebody might try to take my weapon uh as in the rittenhouse case and Look, the, this is where we get to some of the difficulties when there is a when civil unrest occurs, and so number one, the responsibility for um, burning and looting rests with the rioters and the looters, and there has right. to be the force and the weight of law brought down on them. And then, number two, you absolutely have to have uh, effective and and again, this is something that is frustrating somewhat to talk to when you talk about civil unrest with folks um, who don't have any experience with trying to suppress or put down civil unrest. Once it erupts, it is very difficult to immediately and rapidly impose order. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is something where, and then when you add on top of that, sort of the political considerations of were people too reluctant to call out the National Guard and and things like that. But I, you know, I, I think that there is a use of force to protect life. Absolutely. Use of force to protect property, use of deadly force to protect property. I'm very, very leery about that. Um, I'm very, very leery about that. Yeah. Um,
0: I mean, I, I understand that. And that's, I think you're making a, the distinction makes a lot of sense. It's a distinction we commonly see in self-defense law. Right. but. You're, as you talked about there, when, you, when you're when you in a civil unrest situation, when you're in a riot situation, uh, there are a lot of moments where the police are not, as we saw, very clearly firsthand. And, you know, you use the example of a bike, but obviously we're talking about people's livelihoods, their mm-hmm. entire businesses being burned to the ground. A lot of them haven't recovered since then. Sure. And it's hard for me to look at somebody... Who wants to go out like, yes, if it's a minor, perhaps should not be involved. Right. I think Mm -hmm. we probably agree on that front, but it's harder for me to look at even someone like Rittenhouse, maybe I don't see a hero, but it's harder for me to see a a villain either uh, in his actions and somebody else, a business owner who wants to stand outside of their, their only source of livelihood and say, please don't destroy my, my business. And I'll kill you if you do. Well uh you know it's it's hard because they're the person aggressing and going to try and burn down destroy their business if they just don't they're they're the ones who are initiating right. the the negative actions like you like you said so it's it, i'm not going to say there's a clear and obvious uh easy solution here i just i have a hard time seeing somebody like the the rooftop Koreans or the people who stood on their, their businesses in, in South Philly during the riots or people in Atlanta who had someone standing outside to guard their business from being burned down is, is doing something that's morally wrong. It's, well, it's morally do, complicated,
2: but I, I do know. think that, that it is guarding your business. Like, you know, I absolutely completely, totally understand that, but we're talking mm-hmm. about when do you use deadly force? When do you sure. take a human life? Okay. Sure. And that businesses are very important and i was very uh, all of these all of these people who are online is just property damage that's ridiculous to minimize the loss of a business a human life is still more important Mm -hmm. it's still more important and so that's one of the things i think we sometimes get a sort of um, a view of it where we lose sight of the hierarchy of values and in the hierarchy of values uh, you know there are reasons why for example we don't impose the death penalty uh for arson um as as terrible unless arson claims a life and it's premeditated and there's all these aggravating factors etc yeah. um well i think that distinction we, sorry
0: i don't mean to interrupt you but mm-hmm. i think that distinction is kind of what i'm getting at if somebody is if you're standing outside of your business armed during a riot, that's an indication to someone else that uh they should not come near and try to hurt you or your business. And if they persist anyway, like for instance, you're standing on your roof of your business and someone wants to come in and set it on fire, that's causing a deadly threat to you by doing like somebody who's willing to try and go through someone who's armed to get to that property destruction, mm-hmm. you know. Does that not become a dead? That's where I, I think
2: it's it's just so it is here's like the, setting a building on fire with people inside of it. So, yeah, well, obviously, if you set a building on fire with people inside of it, you know, you you have a right to prevent that with deadly force because right. that's a threat to your life. And that's where these things if, get. But OK, hold on a second. You know, if I'm armed, am I saying is my what am I doing? Am I saying I will shoot you. If you try to hurt. My if you if you throw a brick through my window, I will shoot you.
0: But I don't think that's what you're necessarily saying, right? Yeah. You know?
2: Is it? I mean, is it? See, this is this is this is getting to part of the problem right. with open carry and the inherent Which is the next part of our instability here. of that kind of situation is. So, yeah, I mean, on the one hand, I have an ability to defend myself and to bear arms to defend my life. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. The question that I have is, do I have an ability to say to somebody else, leave my business alone or I will kill you? Mm -hmm. Okay, and that in that circumstance, I think that that's a real problem. That's a real problem that I will I will kill you if you harm my property. Um, Mm -hmm. That's a I think in the hierarchy of values. And again, that's not minimizing property. It's maximizing human life. Mm -hmm. which is what our system is designed to do in fact that's why you know this sort of doctrine that says i can't take a human life unless i feel like i'm in danger of death or grave bodily harm Um, and that's why it's so vitally important for um state officials to as as you know within the realm of law and prudence uh enforce civil order as rapidly as possible Um, But it's the it's that very that the vigilante element of this. So you're, again, talking about people who in general have zero training. In dealing with this kind of experience, zero experience with dealing with this often rudimentary understanding of the law, um, rudimentary, maybe don't even know what the law is regarding defensive property, for example, in a highly Mm -hmm. tense, deeply emotional circumstance. And again, this is not to say that um, the police in any way to excuse if the police tactics were bad or a governor loses his w- will. We just need to be really, really, really careful about sending a message that says, um, if somebody messes with my stuff, I can shoot them. Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that's a fair point to make, Right. And And mm-hmm. I do generally agree that you can't use you shouldn't and oftentimes legally can't use deadly force to protect property. Right. However, you know, what I get where I get uncomfortable, right, or where I where I have some small disagreement at least on this front is with you know, we we saw like what what are people supposed to do, right, if the police if the police don't do anything, if the government isn't there to enforce their role as the ones keeping the peace and your business is the one under threat. Um, you're just supposed to let them, let people burn the, burn it down. Like we saw what happened to people who tried to use, uh, to, to defend their businesses without any, without being armed. And they got, uh, there were many people who got severely beaten for the, during doing that exact thing to the point where, you know, near death mm-hmm. uh, in some cases. And uh, so that's where it gets harder to me. It's like, what, you know, I, I get, you know, because you're, it's just, riots are terrible situations. Yeah, so horrible evil, chaos. You and know, they create e- these these terrible choices that people have to make.
2: Yeah, evil people tend to leave good people with few good options, right? Yeah. I mean, this is this is a truism that we've seen throughout history is that evil actors tend to leave good actors with few good options. And one of the things that I worry about is creating a culture that says, because again, a lot of, you know, often a lot of the situational awareness, and this, this goes to somebody who's coming from out of town, or not from out of town, because he, um Rittenhouse was staying in town at the moment, sure. but coming from a zone of peace into a zone of conflict, mm-hmm. you know, one of the problems that often happens there is, you have very little situational awareness, you have no real conception, because often what you're hearing on, you know, Twitter or right wing right, right wing radio or the online or whatever is fragmentary and often false in its real time, because there's such a thing as fog of war, mm-hmm. um, and and in those circumstances, coming in, I think coming into that circumstance, it's really tough to sort of say, I, imagine a situation where coming in openly armed into that circumstance is going to be wise or prudent um when yeah. it's your own business you know that's to me that's where things get that's where the evil actors start to leave those who are good with so few good options if law enforcement either is has mm-hmm. failed or hasn't been able to succeed yet which is there's a difference between those two things uh one of the things about urban unrest that makes it really difficult is a small band of of looters or rioters are highly mobile you can Mm -hmm. if you watch sort of the aerial footage you can see that they will move and so the difficulty there is is there it leaves you with very few good options and the one option that i'm saying that is a bad option is saying if you are going to mess with my business i'm going to shoot you dead Mm -hmm. um and that i think that that is that is a bad option that is yeah, that is it's vigilantism
0: a, it's a, certainly a bad option it's just whether it's the least bad option i guess is my uh, least. my question
2: yeah um, i don't but, but
0: yeah that might be an boy, area boy free we fire don't, zone don't,
2: don't, don't in because somebody's throwing bricks and yeah yeah i, I mean certainly not windows, just throwing no. bricks
0: or you know but but it's if, if you're especially in the case where you're open carrying you're, you're displaying that you're armed and willing to defend yourself or uh and someone still come, tries to go through you to get to the property i mean that that's a circumstance where it's
2: it's, it's more ambiguous it's, it's yeah. certainly more ambiguous
0: but so that's that's all i mean and, and that again it's not not that yeah. people should start shooting anyone who throws bricks at their windows right that yeah. certainly would not be reasonable um, yeah but but there are but i can see circumstances during riots where um you know if you're in your store and someone comes in you know you're not you're not sure p- pushing yourself out into the riot but so the riot is coming into where you are then it becomes less less clear cut to me um but but, speaking but even of again care, like
2: let's say you're you're you know you've got somebody who's shoplifting and knocking mm-hmm. over your you know you're in a business and somebody's knocking over your displays and they're shoplifting yeah. and whatnot and it's not you know can't shoot them no of course not <laughs> i of mean so not. Again, this, this, is a, this is a big issue. What we're hitting at is an underlying issue of to what extent, it, under what circumstances is deadly force permitted. And, yeah,
0: where's the line? Yeah. And it's not, I, I just think it's not always as crystal clear as we'd all like it to be, right? Um, well, yeah, it
2: was, which is one of the reasons that, which is a good transition into open carry. Yes. Because what I think end, ends up happening with open carry is it puts a lot more people on that razor's edge. Hmm. Um, because uh, you know one of the differences between concealed carry a concealed carry world and an open carry world is if somebody has a if a gun is visible in a concealed carry world then it is radiating that there is a threat so if i so i conceal hmm. you know i conceal carry when am i taking out my gun when am i taking out i'm not taking it out just to sh- show it you know i'm not taking when i'm I'm taking out my gun when there's a threat you know right. that that's when I'm taking out my gun uh in an open carry world one of the, especially when open carry is done in extraordinarily tense situations such as um you know uh, when you're protest protesting outside somebody's house <laughs> mm-hmm. um which has b happened which so say, yeah so let's say i'm I'm at my house and there's some guys out there. And they've got an AR-15 and a patrol carry position, which is sort of the one where guns pointed down. You're holding you. You've got your finger, you know, extended, not on the trigger, but you've you know, you've got your finger extended. And the literal line between, and they're right outside your house, and the line between passive protest and mortal threat is literally a fraction of a second and a tiny movement of two arms. Mm-hmm. Well, aren't you a heck of a lot more tense? Aren't you on a heck of a lot more of an alert with your own weapon than if nobody has a weapon, no weapons are visible, and they're just chanting or saying something? Well, of course you are. I mean, of course you are. And then why does the person have the AR-15? They have the AR-15 to make you feel intimidated. Mm-hmm. That's why it's there. It's to make you feel intimidated, to put you on edge. And so this is what we've seen in a lot of protests. I mean, there's people walking around outside the Ahmed Arbery trial right now with AR-15s. And what's the purpose for that? The purpose for that is to be menacing. The purpose for that is to be intimidating. And that, that's what I have a real problem with.
0: Well, I, I would say one I would caution and say that certainly while I'm, I don't open, carry, I conceal carry as you do. Uh, and I I know that a lot of people in the gun rights movement don't particularly like open carry activists and think that they are perhaps hurting the, the cause. Uh, I, I would say that to be fair to them, that they're not necessarily all intending to intimidate people by open carrying uh, or, or that anyone you see on the street who's open carrying on a regular, you know, part of their life is intending to intimidate people either there may be some as as you've noted here with some of these protests where that is the intention and certainly people can be intimidated by the guns uh, Mm -hmm. presence um but i I just wanted to note that that's clearly you you will have plenty of open carry activists who who would dispute the the idea that they're doing it to intimidate people so
2: why do you think someone open carry now we we know why people are open carrying at a protest, uh, say mm-hmm. outside a person's house or at an anti-lockdown like protest. This is, they're trying to intimidate. They're trying to be menacing. Um, as sure. a general matter, you know, like the but, other day I was, I was in line at, uh, at CVS and the guy in front of me on each hip had two pearl handled pistols, which, um, he, so, you know, he kind of looked like, uh, Wyatt Earp, uh, at, and, and the pistols were cool pistols. I mean, that, you know, pearl handled pistols. I mean, it's, how often do you see a pearl handled revolver? Um, pretty cool. Yeah. Why? Well,
0: you know, I, I mean, look, it's personal preference in a lot of cases. I, I think that the one thing that I would note here, as far as a legitimate reason, perhaps, uh, and I'd be interested in your thoughts on it for open carrying, it has to do with the, political philosophy behind the right to bear arms mm-hmm. uh, and that the whole concept of the second amendment to a lot of people i mean in your piece you talk about it being for self defense and certainly that's mm-hmm. uh, i think everyone would agree that that is part of the reason but there is a political philo- uh, ph- philosophy behind an armed populace right which is that it's much more difficult to oppress an armed populace uh the right to keep and bear arms is intended to um keep people free from mm-hmm. uh you know from over overbearing government right? And, right and so people displaying the people displaying that they are in, they are armed sort of is part of that tradition right especially when you're dealing with government protests even in cases where it might be for a cause that you or I don't agree with mm-hmm. um uh, the, the, the political philosophy there is a legitimate one, I think. Uh, and so that, that part of it, I wonder, you know, what your, uh, thoughts are, if you just don't find that to be a particularly salient way of making that point or, or what?
2: I mean, I guess it, yeah. And I, I completely understand, agree that an armed citizenry is a, a, a citizenry much more difficult to oppress. Um, however. You know, when you're talking about open carry now, you know, because one of the things I think that you're talking about when you're talking about an armed citizenry that that is difficult to suppress is you're talking about sort of a kind of latent power. In other words. If a government knows and it absolutely knows that there are hundreds of millions of guns in circulation in the United States of America, this is not a mystery. And it's also not a mystery that the most popular rifle sold is an AR-15. I mean, none none of this is is any kind of mystery to anybody. So uh, the idea that says I'm carrying an AR-15, just to remind you that this is the most popular gun in America, (laughs) I mean, Mm -hmm. rifle in America. And even though it is something that is deeply menacing, is introducing an element of real and and real danger um, into this highly tense public protest, which also can, by the way, end up suppressing people's, it it can have a, you know, we talk a lot about chilling effects on speech, you know, There's a chilling effect that exists when you're dealing with people in what would be an otherwise peaceful situation who's very angry and armed to the teeth right in front of you. And so I think that those are those are the kinds of things that when you're talking about there, you know, there are other constitutional values in 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 play here. And in by saying to someone you can't walk around with an AR-15 at a public protest, for example, is in no way Saying that America isn't an armed citizenry or that America isn't um a a country that's got uh a you know hundreds of millions of yeah. guns and billions of rounds of ammunition in circulation it's but what it is saying is that um you know and this connects actually with common law going back for hundreds of years uh mm-hmm. including in the pre colonial era the colonial era the post um you know, post-Constitution about going out, out armed offensively, going out armed for the fear and terror of the public. Uh, because yeah. that's that's where, that's where I think I, I draw the line. And the interesting thing is, historically, this has flipped because it used to be concealed carry was considered the nefarious thing. It was almost sort of de facto evidence of nefarious intent, whereas open carry was sort of, here I am. You don't have right. to worry about me, but the conceal, but that norm is almost completely flipped.
0: Yes, it absolutely has. And I just have three points and I'm going to leave it to you to to wrap up sure. with, uh, your final thoughts here, because I know we're running. You got another uh, commitment to get to. So uh, one, uh, I would note that, like you just mentioned here, that the argument that the presence of guns is restrictive to First Amendment rights of others is an argument that's being used at the Supreme court right now to justify restrictions on not just open carry, but concealed carry as well. So, uh, you know, I, I feel like that argument, uh, I I don't know that I agree and I'm not sure. And and I'm, I I would wonder how broad the implications are. The second, uh, when you talk about carrying offensively, uh, you're right. You're certainly right about the history there. Uh, there were certainly a lot of laws dealing with that, um as there's another thing that's being discussed through court right now but uh, you know we have brandishing laws that deal with this sort of thing of i understand that you're you're saying that the uh, well it's going from low ready to pointing a gun you know is a, is a sort of very quick thing that can happen <laughs> obviously and so um one is not brandishing and one is brandishing but i would just mm-hmm. point out that it is not legal to threaten people with your guns right. um uh, even if you're open carrying them, right? Uh, it's sort of, and I don't know that open carrying a gun around is an inherent threat to violence, uh, but if somebody makes a threat or moves the gun in a way that would could be perceived as threatening to others, they could be, they they are committing a crime already. That's something we do have laws against in every state. And then my last point um, here, and I, again, I'll just leave it for you to to wrap up your thoughts, but uh, I I worry even even if I find some of what you're saying about open carry to be uh, persuasive here, I do worry about the that outlawing is going to actually accomplish the things that that you're you know try and uh, rid society of the things that you're concerned about here. I just don't, I, I see it more as uh, it's similar to, in my mind to permitless carry versus concealed carry with with a with a permit because i'm not sure that states where you have permits are actually any safer than states with permitless carry because all the, and oftentimes what you get are people arrested on possession charges that aren't necessarily being uh committing other violent crimes and and it's sort of just a crime of of knowledge basically like you know, uh, if you make it illegal for people to open carry, how many real world crimes are you actually stopping by doing that? Beyond just somebody possessing a gun, uh, so that that's what I would worry is that the effectiveness of banning open carry is pretty low. And we've had permitless open carry in the vast majority of the country for the vast majority of its history. So like, I just I don't know that it's it's that serious of a problem or that
2: the solution would, would
0: actually have that great of an impact. So, uh, but I'll leave it to you. Yeah.
2: I think the the argument that concealed carry is somehow deterrent to first amendment rights is, is unsupportable in part, because the very notion of concealed carry is that if, if you and I are standing next to each other and we're having a civil conversation with somebody, uh, under concealed carry, you would have no idea. (laughs) You know, I'm I, you have no idea who it's it's there is no menace because there is the 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 visible present. There is no visible presence of the gun. It's a it's a matter of you're protecting yourself. And it's also a matter of basic civil courtesy as well. Um, you're not menacing in your presence, but you are protecting yourself. And I'm with you on permitless carry. I think that uh, so Tennessee is a permitless carry case uh, state now. It is it is now as of twenty twenty one. And I don't think there's any real evidence that jumping through the hoops of taking the eight hour class <laughs> and getting a special fingerprinting is material is a material factor. Certainly not more material than background checks. I mean, background checks, I think, are a, a material factor, but not not the the class where you go and you shoot 20 rounds or whatever the. Yeah, the, you I don't know, the find economy. permits like objectionable. By yeah, the way. it's just I just I, don't know that they do. much I don't have an objection to permits. It's just that I don't I don't I don't have an object. I, I believe that that the Constitution requires a shall issue regime. I don't mm-hmm. think it requires a permitless carry regime. Uh, so I think New York State Rifle and Pistol Association should win its case because right. the, the literal text of the amendment is to keep. And to bear. Um, and so, so I think that, you know, what you're talking about is I don't think concealed carry suppresses the First Amendment. I agree with you on that there's not really a much on the ground difference between uh, permitless carry and, and, and permitted carry. The on the open carry. Though, I think, you know, it is very interesting that we're the two most contentious trials in the United States of America right now in a highly volatile time in American history are related to people who inserted themselves into or created, and certainly in the Ahmed Arbery case, uh, created a tense situation and, and openly carrying weapons. And Rittenhouse was not guilty of murder. He was not guilty of murder. I think he was guilty of doing something that was reckless, Um, but you know, in the in the Arbery case, these guys mounted up with guns, and you know, I think that there is a material difference in the level of public intimidation and the perception of risk. Because remember, in in um, self defense law, it depends on my perception of risk. Uh, I think there's a difference in perception of risk when I'm dealing with someone who's openly armed versus someone who's not. So that, that's my, those are my qualms about open carry.
0: All right. Well, look, we appreciate you coming on. And I think this is actually going to be our longest episode yet. (laughs) I think we had a really good back and forth, which is, uh, I, I believe it'll be illuminating for a lot of people and it's a good discussion to have, uh, you, you certainly, um, uh, had started a bit of a firestorm with all of this, uh, I think. So, uh, it's good to sit down and talk through it all.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me. And, and I think you said it really well. These are hard things. Mm. It's hard. And, and we can't take our eyes off the ball that it is the rioters are the, the, these are the primary bad actors here that are leaving yeah. a lot of good folks with tough, hard choices. And we can't, we can't neglect that that's that's the principle that those are the, that's the principal bad act. That's the initiating factor in all this. Absolutely. 100%. Uh, we'll have you on again soon.
0: I think in the future, uh, I'd love I it. really appreciate you coming on. I like talking with you. So, um, yeah, thanks for being on and, and we'll see you again soon. Yeah. Thanks so much. All right. It's time for the news update portion of the podcast. As you can see, we've switch things around a little bit this week we're trying a different format where we put the interview first and then do the news update second i think maybe that uh might flow a bit better for people who see the headline uh on the, the podcast and then have to wait through the news update to get to the actual interview that we're touting here so we'll see if that works let you guys let us know if you prefer it this way or prefer it the way we had it before as always if you want to get the show a day early, you can head on over to thereload.com reload.com and buy a membership. That's one of the perks of being a member. In addition to getting access to exclusive stories and analysis pieces every week, you'll also get a special Sunday newsletter. So I think it's a good deal. You buy a membership for $10 a month or a hundred dollars a year. That yearly membership as you can see gives you two months for free or you get 12 months for the price of 10. So go ahead and over, check it out. Every member we get helps us to bring this podcast and our exclusive reporting to you and the rest of the public. Your dollars go to help support the free articles as well that reach a broader audience and have a bigger impact. So consider buying a membership today if you haven't already. And if you have, Another perk is you can come on the show. We'd love to do another member segment again soon. Had a number in the past, and it's one of my favorite segments. Uh, So make sure you reach out and let us know if you want to be on the show as well. But without further ado, let me get to our contributing writer, Jake Fogelman. Jake, this week you had a piece on another poll. We referenced this last week on the podcast, but now we have the actual details of it from Quinnipiac showing a pretty big change in support for gun control. Can you give us a little bit of detail about that?
1: Yeah, that's right. Uh, So we previously covered a Gallup poll that showed a pretty big decline in support for stricter gun laws. Um, Well, this new Quinnipiac poll actually shows that support for stricter gun laws is underwater, where more Americans actually oppose stricter gun laws, at least according to this poll, than do support gun laws by 49% oppose, 46% support stricter gun laws. Um, So that's pretty significant. That's... um, According to the pollsters, that's the first time since twenty fifteen they've actually seen support for stricter gun laws dip below fifty percent. Um so pretty significant development that we're seeing, you know, back to back polls showing a similar trend. And this one in fact showing that more people oppose stricter gun laws than support them.
0: Yeah, no, it's interesting. Gallup showed the same drop, but they still had support for stricter gun laws as the majority position, whereas now Quinnipiac, their polling has it as the minority position. Uh, And there is also some pretty interesting demographic breakdowns in there as well, right?
1: Sure. So obviously, the the typical partisan breakdown held constant. It was ninety one percent of Democrats, I believe, support stricter gun laws still, which is I think the same number Gallup found. Only thirteen percent of Republicans. But uh, in this Quinnipiac poll, independents' their support for stricter gun laws was down at thirty nine percent, which is you know pretty low for sort of a swingy demographic in this debate. Um, A few other interesting findings was even among young people, aged 18 to 34, <clears throat> uh, support for gun control was underwater amongst them as well, which is also a continuation of a trend we've seen, uh, earlier polling from ABC showed like a, a 20 point cratering, I think, in support among that same demographic. So to see that young people are also continuing to uh, voice their displeasure with gun controls is an interesting development.
0: Yeah. And that kind of goes against, I think a lot of narratives that you see about for sure. younger people and their support for gun ownership it feels like we now have a trend of younger demographics actually being more opposed to new gun restrictions so that obviously has a lot of implications moving forward for politics uh, around the issue down the line you know maybe not immediately but obviously the overall change moving against stricter gun laws in the short term here uh, and the Biden administration has a pretty big impact on how the next couple of years are going to go and whether or not the president is going to be able to institute the sorts of gun reforms that he has promised to, especially legislatively. It seems like he's probably going to be forced to act more on his own through executive branch actions than with legislation, especially given the makeup of Congress and where his polling numbers generally are at but also obviously the specific polling on this issue is not trending in the direction that you would want to see if you were the president trying to pass a bunch of uh, gun control policies for sure so uh it's interesting to see those those younger demographics not as enthused about gun control issues now i mean obviously polling is not perfect and not an exact science necessarily and perhaps the sample size for the younger demographics is smaller and so might not be quite as reliable. But it's interesting nonetheless, now that we have two polls showing
1: similar results. For sure. And it is also important to notice, to, to note in the polling, it wasn't all positive for gun rights advocates. Um, it showed, I think, 62% of people said that there should be restrictions on the public carrying of firearms, for example. Um, and it showed only a minority of people felt that more people carrying uh made society safer. Uh so they they did come away with uh a finding that, you know, less people are in favor of stricter gun laws, but they're maybe a little more hesitant in terms of gun carry. Uh not necessarily the best question in the polls, just asking if there should yeah. be restrictions on gun owners in general carrying. There was no specifics on, you know, may issue, shall issue, permitless, but it right. is important to note that there was still uh, a majority of Americans who said they wanted restrictions on carry.
0: Yeah, 62 percent, I believe you're correct there, with which is a significant amount and obviously does. They only really ask two questions yeah. uh, about guns, yeah. and neither one of them gives you a, a whole lot of super detailed insight into what Americans are thinking about different policies. They're sort of just giving you your their general, uh, I would say, attitudes towards stricter gun laws and towards gun carry generally. Um, because their questions are not they're not very profoundly worded uh and and the carry the gun carry question is particularly poorly worded in my opinion personally because it, it asks like whether or not people should uh there should be restrictions on gun owners who want to carry guns in public which is i mean there already are a lot of right. restrictions. On status guns. quo it's one of yeah. these things where it's like uh, what exactly are you trying to get people to tell you in this question and it's not really clear so instead you kind of come away more with maybe a general impression of how people feel about gun carry generally or what that that there should be some sort of restrictions on it which is i mean honestly the way the qu- the question was worded you would expect it to more be closer to 100 percent agreement because uh, most people probably support some sort of restrictions. Sure, <laughs> where you can or can't carry a gun—that's a fairly uncontroversial thing for you not to be able to carry inside of a, a courthouse or something right. along those lines, or schools. Um, you know, they tend to be fairly popular prohibitions on gun carry in specific areas. That, especially if they provide their own security in that area, like a courthouse would, or a police station, or, or something of that nature but um that doesn't obviously (laughs) equate to whether or not we should for instance whether or not the supreme court should strike down all may issue gun carry laws that that remain in the country or whether it should be permitless carrier you know these you don't get that kind of specific insight here you just kind of get
1: this general general feeling right it would be interesting to see a more nuanced asking of that question to see exactly where Americans fall. Like a may issue versus shall issue type of polling question, I think, would be a little more illuminating than just, as you said, a general restrictions. You know, those exist even in states that have permitless care. carry. Um, so right. you don't really glean much from this this poll necessarily this question.
0: Yeah. I mean, obviously, it's polling is not easy, but I do, sure. I do think often pollsters don't really understand the policies that they're asking questions about. And then also you have to deal with the fact that a lot of Americans probably wouldn't understand if you tried to ask them whether they prefer may issue or shall issue gun carry permitting laws. That's right? A good point. So, you know, the job of a pollster is not easy, uh, but oftentimes I think they run into the same sorts of issues that a lot of media run into when they're dealing with gun, uh, gun policy questions. So... Uh, but still illuminating nonetheless, you know, it's what we have it's the best information we have available. And I think it's still useful to discuss and it still gives us some insight into what's going on in America with gun policy, right? Sure.
1: Still a marker of a trend.
0: Absolutely. Uh, the other story we had this week, um, we're, t- we're filling this episode early because Thanksgiving is this week. So happy Thanksgiving, uh, everyone. Uh, happy Thanksgiving, Jake. I hopefully uh, we'll we'll uh, get all of our writing done and podcasting done, uh, so we can enjoy the the holiday weekend with our yeah, families. Right? Absolutely. And I, I hope all the listeners uh, enjoy their their time together with family as well. It seems like we've got <clears throat> perhaps uh, people will be more uh, protected this time around and more open to gathering together. Most of the experts, I believe, at this point you know, whatever people think of them. Most of them have now suggested that, yes, gathering for the holidays is is a perfectly safe thing to do, especially if you've been vaccinated and so forth. Uh, obviously, it's not the p- <laughs> the purview of our podcast here, but but uh, I do, do hope that everyone enjoys their time uh, with family this upcoming weekend. Uh, and perhaps they'll get to listen to this podcast when during some of their time off. Um, but... The other piece we had so far this week was about Beto O'Rourke, the Democrat running for the gubernatorial nomination in Texas. Uh, sort of he's almost a perennial candidate at this point, I think, <laughs> because like he was a congressman, right? He he won he successfully won a, con- a congressional seat in Texas near El Paso. Uh then he ran for Senate against Ted Cruz and lost. Um Even Despite Ted Cruz polling fairly poorly in that race, he still managed to lose. And then he ran for the presidential nomination in 2020 and lost that too. But one key event during that primary, that race, was his pivot towards the end when his polling, he had started off quite strong in the polls in that 2020 race when he was one of the first people to be like a buzzworthy candidate <clears throat> very early on and then after that point he, as other candidates got in like Biden and and you know Bernie and Warren and, and the the there was quite a lot of candidates that ran in 2020 on the democratic side his numbers came down quite a lot and then towards the end of his campaign he he attempted to make up for this by pivoting towards gun confiscation uh not not just gun bans or you know sales bans or uh, universal background checks or something along those lines he went straight for full-throated gun confiscation he said hell yes we want to take your AR15s, your AK47s. He said no one should be able to own these things and they should be forced to turn them in, not just a voluntary buyback program, but a mandatory mandatory buyback program. And he elaborated on this extensively throughout that rest of his campaign, which to be fair did not last very long, yeah. and this pivot did not work for him in that race. He actually ended up at 0% support in one of the final polls uh of the race before he dropped out but he did say in that time that not only should the sale of ar-15s and ak-47s be banned but those who own them already like the one here behind me in my uh, apartment should be those people should be forced to uh give them back to the government or uh, there should be a mandatory buyback program, is what he suggested. And then he further suggested during a CNN interview with Anderson Cooper that those who do not comply with that mandatory buyback program would face consequences, as he put it, from law enforcement. Uh, and effectively, that their guns would be taken by force. So <clears throat> his position is pretty well staked out. But now, Jake, he's running in Texas. The, a lot of people think this is a big liability for him, but so far he when you know when he announced uh that I believe it was a, one of the local papers there, I think it was the Dallas Morning News, yep, interviewed him and, and said uh he he said he stands by that. And right. now uh he's he's had another uh interview with um cnn again actually this time where uh can you give us just a little bit of the detail on what exactly he did
1: yeah so not only is he you know standing by his uh notable touching of the third rail of politics by calling for a gun confiscation but he's kind of doubling down and he's uh actually going after current texas gun law and current texas governor greg abbott criticizing what he calls gun extremism um uh, Mostly, he's focusing in on permitless carry as as his form of gun extremism. Um, talking about how he, oh he supports the Second Amendment, but he's just anti gun extremism. Uh, and you know, we were talking before we started filming. It's just a little funny to to call permitless carry whatever you may feel about permitless carry, and it certainly is controversial in some places. But to to criticize that as gun extremism when 21 states have enacted such a policy, but then still be doubling down on gun confiscation is a bold political strategy, I think, for any candidate, but especially one running in a state like Texas in a statewide race. Um, So very interesting.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's just fascinating to watch him. I mean, obviously, you know, he doubled down on this policy. Sorry, let me clear my throat here. He doubled down on this policy again in this interview. But ironically, he's the same interview. he's, He's... criticizing gun extremism from right. from greg abbott the incumbent republican governor you know he, he points to like you said permitless carry as as a form of gun extremism and he just doesn't want us to get caught up in extremism well, at the same time he's proposing what is a completely unprecedented policy in american right. history which is gun right. confiscation literally taking peoples who already illegally own the firearms uh, forcing them to surrender those guns on on mass, or face legal consequences, face arrest right. and conviction. So it's just a weird, which which is a policy he calls, of course, common sense, uh, common sense gun law. Which I mean, whatever you think of these policies, and I would be hard pressed to. Find some. I think you'd be hard pressed to find somebody in Texas who's going to vote in the gubernatorial election who would be more moved by this policy towards Beto than people who were voting in the Democratic primary for president in
1: 2020. Yeah, nationally, for right? sure. Like it's,
0: it, it didn't work with those voters, and it seems much less likely to work with Texas gubernatorial voters. Uh, I mean, obviously, we'll have to see. He's polling behind. Abbott and uh, also behind uh, Matthew McConaughey, who's the movie star that might get into the race in Texas as well, although he hasn't actually filed anything to run. So we'll see if that ever really materializes or not. But, you know, he's six points behind Abbott in the latest poll. He was nine points behind before he jumped in the race. So it seems like maybe he's gotten a little bit of a a bump from his announcement. Uh, So we'll have to see how it plays out. I will say that Permitless carry does not poll very well sure. uh, in most jurisdictions. It's not, especially nationally, it's not a very popular idea when when people are asked about it, but um, that hasn't stopped, of course, 21 states from implementing. Of course, Vermont had it since the founding of the country. Sometimes it's called Vermont carry uh, right. in addition to constitutional carry or permitless carry, depending on who you ask. but. <clears throat> You know, th- this policy is swept through. Like you said, it's been implemented in places no one has ever put into place a mass gun-, gun confiscation program, even on something like AR-15s or AK-47s, which, again, I mean, I think it's underscore, like, those are very popular guns. They're not like random weird guns. It's not like the bump stock ban or something right. like that, right?
1: Or was Where a novelty item.
0: Yeah. I mean, there there were, what, a, a couple hundred thousand of those in circulation, maybe? Right. Right. How many how many ARs do we have?
1: Yeah. Twenty plus million at this point, probably that's more right. after last year's big sales. So,
0: yeah, that's just, and especially that's in a state like Texas. <laughs> yeah. So what he's proposing is not some small one off thing like this is a major policy. It's also one that's consistently been controversial and consistently been something that gun control activists have said they don't want to do. So, you know, I don't know if there'll be any friction there between him, his campaign, and the gun control activists, because, again, he's pr- appropriating this, the what they've, you know, the, the language that they've been using for things like universal background checks or bans on the sale of assault weapons. And he's applying it, you know, this common sense label directly to confiscation of firearms, which, they, which has long been something that the gun control group said that they do not support. Right, And that, and frankly, it's been anyone who claims people support co- confiscation or the gun control group support confiscation has been told that they're fear right? right? So uh, obviously, Beto presents a huge problem for that because he is literally saying he wants to take people's, like, literally, he says, hell yes, <laughs> we're going to take your AR-15. Like, there's no nuance there. Right. This is his policy. It's confiscation. There's no other way of looking at it regardless of what side you're on so right uh it'll be interesting to see how that comes out in terms of the way that the gun control groups interact with him. because i I would imagine they'd be natural allies obviously and um you know the gun control groups aren't going to endorse abbott clearly sure so i don't know if they'll be able to get him to moderate or or what will happen there if he'll push their message to (laughs) further to the extreme Uh, pretty
1: Pretty tough for him to walk back at this point. Um, and I think it is interesting, this story coming off the, the tail of the last story we covered, the fact that polls are showing declining support for gun control. And you have this guy Mm. in a very gun friendly state running harder on gun control than any other candidate has where like, as you said, literally says, hell yes, we're going to take your guns. Um, it just seems like there's a disconnect and it's kind of kind of wonder what kind of political advice he's getting from his advisors where they see this as a viable campaign strategy.
0: Yeah, we had Adam Serwer on the podcast a little while back, um, who lives in Texas, uh, you know, writer for The Atlantic, very plugged in political guy. And he, you know, he thought that Veto was going to have to walk back that position to be competitive, that he, you know, he thought Abbott has vulnerabilities from the handling of the pandemic and the, the winter storm that they had a, while, a little while back. But, you know, I, I don't know. But Beto hasn't done that uh i expected him to do it too he always could you know that's the thing about politicians it's like it's not it's never shocking when they just completely change their position or something sure so maybe it's coming but uh yeah i guess he has the advice he's must be getting at this point is to stick with it because that's what he's doing so we'll have to see how that plays out it will be interesting uh but anyway that's that's all we've got for this week's episode of the weekly reload podcast thank you all for joining us make sure you head over to the reload.com Check out our latest stories, subscribe to the free weekly newsletter, buy a membership if you're inclined to support what we're doing. Because again, if we are completely 100% independently funded by our readers and we need your help. We need your support to survive and to grow and to bring you more gun news in the future. So make sure you head over there today and we will see you next week.
1: Happy Thanksgiving, everybody.